Luke chapter 1. And then on in the back of our hymnals, page 21, we'll read the answers together from Lord's Day 14. Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 through 38. This is God's word. He has given it to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Lord's Day 14, let's read the answers together. Page 21 of our blue hymnals. Two questions. First, number 35. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature so that he might become David's true descendant in all things like us, his brothers, except for sin. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin, mine since I was conceived. The earth certainly is beautiful, and you can look around uh, many places and be overcome with the awe of of what you see. Uh, You can be floored with the goodness of God and his benevolence in giving to us uh, the changing of the seasons, 
the rain that uh, makes plants and food grow. We can stand in awe of the, the good graces that he gives to us. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And something is yet still amiss in this world and in this creation. And that is corruption. This is a world of corruption. There's a, a story of a, a missionary to one of the very desolate islands of Hawaii, Molokai, Father Damien, uh, Joseph Damien. And he was sent to this island that has been described as uh, one of the most breathtaking places in all of the world. The 3,000 foot tall cliffs over the sea covered in, in, in green and uh, the bluest water of the Pacific Ocean all things that are breathtaking, and yet he was sent to this island, perhaps one of the most beautiful places in the world, uh, because it was a colony of lepers. Everyone on the island had been sent there by the government in Hawaii because they had leprosy, and it was a place where they were trying to keep that disease contained. There hadn't yet been a cure discovered for this disease, and so here you had the, the, the breathtaking and awe-striking scenes of this wonderful island coming face-to-face with one of the ugliest realities of human corruption, this disease that ate away at people's bodies. There is something about that that makes the human heart cry out that we were not made for corruption. Corruption is, of course, the consequence of sin. And something that's so dangerous about the world in which we live is that it has become relatively easy to sail through life and successfully avoid, for the most part, the deeper realities of our corruption. The sick uh, we keep in hospitals, which are a wonderful blessing from God, but it can kind of be out of sight, out of mind for those who are healthy. Those who... Near death often are ushered away to a place far away where they can receive care that is good, but we often don't remind ourselves that these are the kinds of things people dealt with on a day-to-day basis. And that explains why when, when the ugly realities of corruption come to our door, come to our front door, it often stops us in our tracks. Suddenly, the things to which we were assigning great importance no longer seem that relevant to our lives. Ultimate questions haunt us. The meaning of life confuses us. The previous goals of life at times embarrass us when we are confronted with the ugliest realities of corruption. And we're reminded once again of how frail life really is. This week I had a very difficult experience of of seeing something that would break any reasonable person's heart. It was a, a baby, newborn baby, born extremely sick, born with a, a fatal brain tumor. Uh, she was alive for just a couple of days, born to our friends. She went to be with the Lord last night. Of course, the, the pain that I had to process in this whole thing was nothing compared to the pain of the parents. And I could not help but think, in, in the midst of it all, as uh, Michelle and I were just talking about it, praying about it, all I could think of is we were not made 
for this. We were not made for this. But I was brought to another thought, and it's this, is that uh, the condition that made this child's life so short is a condition that I share with her. We share corruption. Corruption comes to meet us in different ways. It comes to each person's life in different process. But I am with her on that path. I'm subject to decay, the decay that we have as human beings. By God's providence, we must learn to make use of these things which he has given to us. When we're confronted with these realities, when we're reminded of the frailty of life, we must learn to make use of them by the Holy Spirit's power and by the guidance of God's word to make sure that we are doing what we ought to do to learn truth in and through them, through God's help and by God's grace. We remind ourselves that we were not made for corruption. We remind ourselves that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent to bring us back, to redeem us from being a corrupted race. The book of wisdom, which is part of the Apocrypha, thus it's not part of the inspired scriptures, says this. It rings true. It says, God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his party experience it. This is true. as the image of God. And we're made in God's image. That itself testifies to the fact that we were not made for corruption. We were not made to be together on this path of decay that comes to meet all of us. God is life. And those who bear his image are to bear a resemblance of that life as well. And so what we remind ourselves of is that as God, by his providence, brings these things into our lives, these little reminders of the ugliness of corruption, these these reminders of, uh, in many ways, the, the difficulty of life, when God brings those to our lives by his providence, we can rest in the fact that even still he is fitting us for his kingdom. The early church father Augustine says this, Since we are not yet ready for the banquet of our Father, let us grow familiar with the manger of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second that we're ready for the banquet of our Father, He will call us home. Our earthly life will end. But since we are not yet ready, since we remain here below, the Father reminds us, let us grow familiar with the manger of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is because familiarity with the matchless mystery of the birth of Christ, the conception of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary, prepares us for the banquet of our Heavenly Father. A couple of ideas tonight. We, we needed Him. We needed Jesus to save us. We needed Him to save us. And He lived a life suited to save. We needed Him to save. He lived a life suited to to save. We went through this passage as we walked through the Gospel of Luke. One of the things that we focused on at that point was the unexpectedness of God's grace. And that's really what uh, this narrative drives home to us. Mary is in Galilee. She's in Nazareth. She's well off the beaten path, way north of Jerusalem, kind of a backwoods town that uh, nobody would expect uh, or uh, to, to see anything great come out of that town. It would be almost like a, you know, a Supreme Court justice being born in the middle of Appalachia, right? this little tiny town. You wouldn't expect it. 
That's where Jesus was born. And it teaches us that God's grace is an unexpected thing. It's something that human beings, we don't control God's grace. It's something that only he could design. It comes in unexpected ways. Jesus is a different kind of king. But though it is, un, it, though it is unexpected, it is absolutely necessary. The way that things unfolded in the life of Christ, uh, we know we can rest in the fact that God unfolded it the exact way that we needed. We needed Jesus to come the way that he did in order to redeem us from our corruption, from our fallenness. The early church really did a wonderful job of grasping this truth, and a much better job than we often do. I was reading in, in uh, the, the bulletin today, reminded of uh, this wonderful blessing that uh, those who have been diagnosed with ALS, they have this opportunity now to communicate electronically. They can still communicate through the help of technology and computers. Uh, But suppose that uh, that kind of machine, empowered by whatever technological software or whatever, suppose that it contracted a, a virus and it messed up the technology so that what was being punched into it uh, wasn't what was being processed and coming out of it, right? So this machine, because of some sort of glitch, comes to the point where it's spitting out gibberish. Someone who has ALS trying to communicate with his family and uh, can no longer do so because of uh, a virus in the computer. You think about it, you say, well, that machine, that wonderful technology, is no longer doing what it was created to do. And you would need those who created the program to come in, assess the problem, and fix it to find out what's wrong with it so that it could uh, once again be restored to its purpose. The idea there is that human beings were created to love God, to be in fellowship with God, to worship Him, and to glorify Him. After the fall, through our nature, in our conception, we are not doing that. We are not born into a state where uh, naturally we all the time love God, glorify Him, and exalt Him and worship Him. Nor are we in perfect fellowship with Him. So someone could look at the world and say, here you have a supposedly all-powerful God. And He creates the world, He creates the human race, He creates the human race in order to glorify Himself. And then what happens? That whole project gets off track. And now, all of a sudden, the human race is no longer doing what it was created to do. The devil coming into the Garden of Eden has thrown humanity off the track of its purpose. And someone would look at that and say, well, who's more powerful, God or the enemy? It seems that the enemy has thwarted the purpose of God. And thus, in order for God to restore us to our original purpose, to restore the human race, to be those who glorify him, who serve him, and who worship him. He needed to set it right. And in order to set it right, he had to come. Really, the, the, the sweep of the Old Testament is you're, you're, we're looking for a savior. We're waiting for that seed of the woman to be born. And We think it's going to be born in the line of of Abraham and Israel. And and all of these figures keep popping up. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. But we're told time and time again that human beings fall and they fail. It gets to the point where we say, God, 
has to come. God has to come. And when Jesus came, he needed to come in order to save. It was an act of saving, and we know this well, to be saved from our sins. But in our passage in Luke, uh, the angel tells Mary, you shall call him Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He, he shares the name with Joshua. Joshua, uh, that really is Jesus' name. That he is a savior, one who saves by the power of God. Joshua was the one who brought the Old Testament people of God into the land of rest. He was a, a savior figure. It was unexpected grace that we see in Jesus, but it was absolutely necessary. God needed to come. God needed to come to save. We read that in Luke chapter 1, that he will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be called the Son of God. Finally, humanity finds the one that could save them. And in, in order to do so, he lives a life that is suited to save, a life that is suited to be uh, um, accomplished, or a life that is, a, that is suited to accomplish salvation. So when we confess the Apostles' Creed, we are saying that Jesus came as the only exact thing that we needed in order to be saved from our corruption. That's what we're confessing. We needed him to be that perfect Savior. In a sense, we can say that God came to die in order to bear the judgment. He came as God and man, true God and true man, in order to bear the judgment. God came to die. But it's not so simple, is it? It's not so simple uh, as if to say that God came to die because God cannot die. God cannot die. He, and he cannot take upon himself sin to his divine nature. And Jesus Christ takes sin upon himself in order that he might be the redeemer of all the elect, but God cannot become associated with sin. And so here we say that what the angel says to, to Mary is inescapable. This child to be born will be divine, son of the Most High, the Son of God. This is what the incarnation then means to us because it is the answer for how God could come to earth to recover what was lost, to fix the glitch in the program, preventing us to live according to our ultimate purpose. But, but, how does that happen? How can God come to die? How can God come to bear sin? This is what the early church grasped so well that we fail to often. This is what Athanasius says. The word, or the pre-incarnate Christ, knew that death was a necessary condition of undoing corruption. But it was impossible for the Word to die, being immortal, the only Son of the Father. Thus, He takes to Himself a body capable of death, a body which partakes of the second person of the Trinity, exalted above all, so that it might be worthy to die in the stead of all, and might remain all the while incorruptible, and might defeat the power of corruption by the grace of the resurrection. This is what Lord's Days 5 and 6 teach. What do we mean? What do we need? Man has sinned. Man must pay for sin. But an imperfect man can't pay for sin. So you need a perfectly righteous man. But a mortal man, a mere mortal man, isn't going to be able to see it through all of the way. So we need that person to be God as well. So we find it in Christ alone. The race of men would have gone to ruin had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, not come 
among us to meet the end of death. Augustine says that God became a son of man so that corrupted sons of men might become sons of God. To human eyes, this is not possible. To human eyes, to the scientific method, to earthly expectations, the virgin birth itself was not possible. The laws of nature can't explain it. We also see in this passage that that God gives another sign. The birth of John the Baptist, born to a woman who herself was barren and who had gotten to the age where she could no longer bear children. She was past menopause. One point of both of these births taken together is that God brings about to reality something impossible. He makes life pop up in unexpected places where naturally no life would be found. Naturally, you will not find life in the womb of a virgin. You will not find life in in the womb of a woman who's past the age of childbearing. But there you have it, both things together, for all things are possible with God. We needed Jesus exactly the way that he was. The virgin birth tells us that it, it, it is that way so that he could be the one to free us from corruption, just like Lord's Days 5 and 6 say. He takes to himself a true human nature, yet he remains without sin. He stays outside of the line of Adam's sin. One of the things I love about um, this Lord's Day is it says, what is the benefit? What's the benefit of this virgin birth, this virgin conception? I love it because it's it's a reminder that in a world obsessed with practicality, right? Just to get down to the the brass tacks of it all. Get down to the main point. Give me something that I can sort of go and, and apply to my life. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this kind of question six or seven times to remind us that though the church may often shun deep doctrines for applicable life lessons, it's often the deepest doctrines that are usually the most useful things for our lives. Well, what benefit, what practicality can we find in the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Christ? Well, the first thing is, of course, he is our mediator. You're not going to find a mediator that does not walk the same path that Jesus did. He must be human. He must be righteous. He must himself be divine so that by his incorruptibility he might bring to the human race by the grace of the resurrection immortal immortality and eternal life. He has done this in order to restore us to dignity. It's another thing the early church fathers talk about, restoring to dignity. One early church father uses the illustration of a, an abandoned town, sort of run down. Uh, there's sort of nothing dignified about it. If a king sort of looks on the map and says, I'm making that my new capital city, and sort of the whole project moves to that old, run down, uh, deserted town, all of a sudden, that, that town that was once despised, disregarded, no longer remembered, all of a sudden it's, it's returned to this place of dignity. Jesus Christ, himself eternal God, comes to take on himself human flesh. He restores the human race in general to a place of dignity. That's what he has done, returning it back to a, firm, a former glory. 
But one of the wonderful things about that second question is a personal touch. It's not just that Jesus becomes mediator for sin in general, but that he becomes the savior of my sin specifically. He has come to wash away my sin. This confronts us with a question. Do we realize how badly we needed to be saved from our sin? These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking ourselves more. Do we realize how badly we needed to be saved from our sin? Do we realize how awful it is to be subjected to corruption? In this world in which we live, where we can kind of keep it at an arm's length, This world in which we live where we can be tempted to think that we're overcoming nature, we're overcoming our human nature, we're overcoming all of these problems that we have, we're going to find a solution to all of them. Do we realize how bad, how awful it is to be subjected to corruption? We're never going to fix all of the problems that we have. This is the life that we've got. And as we look to the Savior, as we look to the providence of God, Are we finding in him our strength? Are we finding our comfort and our solace in the fact that in Christ we are redeemed from this corruption? This allows us to to, to think about what are the ways that this personal representation of Christ, this one who is the savior of my sin, all of my sins that that I bear since my conception, what are the ways that this personal representation of Christ is applied to me? And what effects is it to have upon my life? You can apply that, that abandoned, deserted city illustration to yourself personally. It's not just that Christ comes and returns the human race to a dignity. Ephesians 1 says that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And so it impresses upon our minds and our hearts the reality that the King of kings and the Lord of lords has come to take up abode, his abode in us. It raises us as his servants to a greater dignity, a greater honor, a greater call to live with a care knowing that we live before God, that we've been called to live a certain way. And he's restored us to a dignity in Christ. Gregory the Great early church father, picks up on this as he's talking about this very point. He says, Let us be careful then, dear brothers, that no uncleanness shall defile us. Let us prove our worthiness by how we live. Let no sensuality defile us. No evil purpose come to accuse us. Let malice not devour your hearts, nor pride exalt it, nor the desire of worldly gain blow it about in every direction, nor anger inflame it. Defend the honor of God within you, O man, against all of these vices, since it was, be- it was because of you that God became man who lives and reigns forever. It was because of you that God became man to restore you to your original purpose, your ultimate purpose, to raise you to a greater dignity, greater glory. See, it, it brings to our minds and to our hearts with a, with a freshness When Paul says, uh, live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, you have been created anew in Christ, it it gives a freshness to that truth. He came from heaven to earth to raise you to your former glory. Another benefit is that we are filled with this greater picture of Christ and his birth, the virgin conception, virgin birth, 
We ought to be filled with a greater desire to see him. We ought to be filled with a desire to behold Christ, the one who became man, the one who sits on the throne. Psalm 17 says this, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. When we see Christ exalted, we shall see that which can alone satisfy. It fills us with a heavenly mindedness. It fills us with a desire to know that uh, the greatest day that we will ever know is the day that we will behold Christ. We will see him face to face. The rock song from many years ago, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In Christ, we have found what we are looking for, but we haven't yet seen what we have found. Or rather, the one we should have been looking for has found us. And we await with great anticipation the day that we will see him. Augustine says this, What eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, and what has not entered into the heart of man, he promised to show to those who love him. Until the favor of seeing him, beholding him, is granted to us. Until he shows us what will completely satisfy us. Until we drink to satisfaction that fountain of life. While we wander about, apart from him, but strong in faith. While we hunger and thirst for justice. Longing with an unspeakable desire for the beautiful vision of God. Let us celebrate with devotion his birth in the form of a servant. The truth of his birth The reminder of it is, should always be uh, something that calls us to be filled with a wonder. And that's really the last benefit that I'll name tonight. The last benefit is the benefit of silent awe. We can say all, all that we have to say about the birth, about the conception, the virgin birth and the virgin conception of Christ. But as much as we understand, we still never come up to to grasping the fullness of the mystery. The fullness of the mystery. We must not think that we can domesticate or humanize God just because he took on humanity in Christ. It doesn't make God completely knowable. He's not. He's incomprehensible. The incarnation makes us stand in awe of Christ. To stand in awe of him in silence. And the heart, the soul that stands in awe of Christ will love him more, will worship him more, will find it a greater delight to serve him and to make sacrifice to take up their cross and follow Jesus. One last quote that I'll share with you. We can't explain how this birth happened. We can't even hope to do so. No words could do it justice. No thought could ever approach its truth. The divine nature is not subject to our observation. It can't be tamed by our thoughts or contained by our reasoning. What we need is to be in awe of the incarnation. Nature can be observed by us. A married woman conceives and gives birth to a son, and that fulfills the purpose of her marriage. But when a virgin gives birth, that is higher than earthly nature. We can comprehend the natural birth, but as to the second, we fall silent. Not because we are afraid, but because we know that our imperfection will distort the purity of such a truth. We must fall silent, and in silent stillness, revere the virtue and purity of this act, and be drawn to its virtue. 
and not going beyond where words can take us to be granted with the heavenly gifts that come from our Lord. The benefit of silent awe. We must fall silent as we consider our God who became man because he was the only chance we had to be saved, because he was exactly what we needed. We needed God to redeem us from our corruption. Without him, it would not have happened. May we stand in awe of him more and more as we love him more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and great God, we ask that these glorious truths, these glorious doctrines be impressed upon our hearts, that we might be encouraged, spurred on to love you more, to worship and serve you more. We grasp fully not the mystery and we we cannot contain or observe perfectly your nature. So we ask for your grace and your spirit that we might know what you will us to know and so that in doing so, uh, we might love you more. In Christ's name we pray.